0: Okay, so we're going to press on in looking at how Isaiah comes into the New Testament. Luke today is the topic. The Gospel of Luke. We'll pray first. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a delight it is for us to be gathered from our respective homes and come together at Oakland Hills Community Church. Each one of us has a unique conversion narrative We thank you for the blessed work of the Holy Spirit that drew us out of the world into the kingdom of our blessed Redeemer and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that each one of us is furnished with gifts, that we might all come together in the body of Christ as the church and put our gifts to good use so that uh, the word might be broadcast widely And that we might uh, carry out uh, the mission of the Church, even as recorded in the Great Commission, to the ends of the earth. Lord, we thank you for all of our many blessings. Uh, We lift up our many petitions and supplications. We know that there are families grieving at this time. Lord, we pray that you might comfort them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so you have your hand out. We're dealing with Luke this morning, the Gospel of Luke. What was Luke's occupation? He was a physician, Dr. Luke, and uh, he was Jew or Gentile? A Gentile, very good, we're off to a great start. And who was his uh, source, his greatest human source for what he wrote in Luke and Acts was who? Who? He's informed by, he traveled often with Paul. There we go, Paul. Paul the Apostle. So Luke and Acts together is 24% of the New Testament. 24% of the New Testament in Luke and Acts. So we'll treat Acts separately in a few weeks. The yellow handout is the one I used in 2008. So I continued with that 2008 version and you've got a white insert and you've got a blue insert, hopefully. So I'll have to be expeditious with my time this morning. Hometown is one of our topics this morning. If somebody asks you, what is your hometown? What might be your response? What city? or place you consider to be your hometown. uh, Okay, very good, very good. So I'm sure we would have Egypt as a hometown, and we would have diverse places uh, that we come from. And uh, so, I mean, the occasion now would be usually a high school graduation. You might go back to your hometown. So uh, next year will be my 50th. I'll go to our reunion, Lord willing. Uh, Ypsilanti would be my hometown. Um, Okay, so this morning we have Jesus coming to his hometown, which was where? Where was Jesus' hometown? Nazareth. So Nazareth is right here. So we've got the Sea of Galilee, and we've got Nazareth over here. And about 80 miles south would be Jerusalem. Okay? So Jerusalem is the headquarters city in Judea, then Samaria, and then Galilee. Jesus was a Nazarene. He was a Nazarene born and raised in Nazareth. I went with Ligonier in 1994 on a 20 day trip to The Holy Land, which is the size of four Michigan counties. What's being pictured here is the size of four Michigan counties. No, we have 83 counties, so it's a very small area. A plane flies over Israel in less than two minutes. So hard to defend a country that a plane flies over in less than two minutes. But uh, we went to Nazareth, and we were told that at the time of Jesus, it was the size of a football field. Nazareth was the size of a football field and it was very small and everybody knew everybody and uh, they lived in caves we went into some caves and uh, so they were mostly cave dwellers in this little village of Nazareth up near the Sea of Galilee in Galilee so that's the setting of Luke chapter 4 so let's start with the yellow handout Luke remarkably uses quotations from, or allusions to, Isaiah in those passages where leading characters appear. When John the Baptist, Jesus, and Stephen appeared, Luke introduces a quotation from Isaiah. Luke attributes to Paul, in the closing scene of Acts, a citation from This important chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. For Luke, this indicates that Isaiah is a crucial key to understanding the Luke acts as a whole. And commentaries will say that Luke undoubtedly had the idea of the two scrolls from the beginning. He knew he was going to have what we know of as the Gospel of Luke, and he was going to have Acts of the Apostles. And he's writing in the 60s, okay? He's writing in the 60s about 30 years after the date of crucifixion. If you have your Bible, it begins Luke 1.1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, And ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time, 30 plus years, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Okay, so Luke is giving us this very important first few verses that he undertook a very solid investigation. And he worked with multiple sources. So this helps us to understand the mode of inspiration or the means of inspiration that it's verbal using words and plenary throughout. And uh, so this disabuses us of the idea that one night an angel whispered into Luke's ear all of what we know of as the Gospel of Luke. Uh, It wasn't by dictation, but it was rather Luke uh, compiling a lot of information and then deciding and determining to write it out on these two scrolls. Okay? And uh, so the way that Luke opens is very important. Okay, page 2 of the yellow. In Luke 1 and 2, Luke presents Jesus as a continuation of God's salvation for Israel. One of his methods is the parallel presentation of John the Baptist and Jesus. Similar to the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets... John the Baptist and Jesus are distinguished by special birth. Now, John the Baptist's mother was who? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Okay, and she was what? What do we know about Elizabeth? She's older and she was barren. Barren. Horrible curse, thought of that way. Horrible curse, not to be able to deliver children. Now, in the Old Testament, there's another woman, I'll tell you, in 1 Samuel, that is similar. And she was barren, and her name was Hannah. Hannah. And Hannah gave birth to Samuel. Samuel. So there's some parallel between Hannah and Elizabeth and Samuel and John the Baptist, okay? Samuel... About the Old Testament, you're thinking, "Wow, where have I heard that before?" That sounds awful like Hannah and Samuel, and dedicating your firstborn son then to the temple. And uh, so, these are important clues in the text that hopefully you train yourself to pick up on. If you have a study Bible, of course, it's given you lots of heads up. Luke is the sole gospel author to use an Isaianic text to announce the salvation of the Gentiles. The phrase, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God is remarkable. Although Luke uses the word, the Greek word for salvation, only three times he does it in crucial places. Simeon in the temple, and Paul announces salvation to the Gentiles. So this morning in particular we're looking at chapter two with Simeon, four with Nazareth, eight with the parables, entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then the mention of the vineyard from Isaiah five, and then the Emmaus road at the very end of uh, chapter 24. Page 3. Isaiah 61 is where we will be when we look at chapter 4 on Nazareth. At Luke 7.22 Jesus and his answer to John the Baptist disciples depict him as the coming one with the healing ministry that Isaiah had foretold as a profile piece. Luke provides in brief and outline the contours of the entire ministry of Jesus by way of the use of this text from Isaiah. It is remarkable that Luke often distributes his references to Isaiah between Luke and Acts. An allusion to a text in Luke balanced by a quotation of the same text in Acts. This strategy suggests that Luke uses text from Isaiah as a framework for his own work. Luke counts on an audience who would have had some knowledge of the scroll or the book of Isaiah. Okay, so let's look here then on the white. Well, I guess first I want to go into Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 with Simeon. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem and he had to go up to the temple on the 8th day for circumcision. But then he's got to come back on the 40th day for this dedication or to ransom himself. He's the firstborn. He's the firstborn male. So technically he's the property of the temple you have to ransom your firstborn son back from temple service by this offering of like two turtle doves, if you're poor. Also, Mary needs to be purified. She's given birth. That causes impurity. So if you've had a baby boy, you come to the temple to be purified on day 40. If it's a girl, it's day 80. Okay? Okay. So Mary needs to come to the temple on day 40 to be purified after having delivered a baby boy. And Jesus is going to be bought back from temple service by the payment by his parents of these turtle doves. But while they're there in the temple, providentially, not by coincidence, but by providence, we have Simeon. Simeon. Okay, verse 27 of chapter 2. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, So here is Simeon, old Simeon, takes the baby Jesus at day 40. He's 40 days old, okay? And Simeon holds him. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So this light, this light to the Gentiles, if If at the end of my time teaching on this series, if you remember one verse, one verse from Isaiah, it would be what? Isaiah, the light to the Gentiles. It would be Isaiah chapter... 42 or... 49, verse 6, okay? 42 or 49, verse 6. Which is this light to the Gentiles. Okay, so here is Simeon, very old... And he actually holds the person now. He holds the Christ child and he sees in this child the one who will greatly enlarge. Now, you know, I took you through all the verses, or not all the verses, but we had this series of verses uh, going back to Genesis 3.6. Uh, opening up a salvation after the fall, and then, particularly Genesis 12:3, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is after the Tower of Babel and the scattering of nations on the face of the earth. But on this golden thread of salvation being broad, so many have the view in the Old Testament that God is so narrow, he's got on blinders, And it's all about Abraham and the Jews and the Jews and the Jews and the Jews. And almost to hell with the rest of the nations after the Tower of Babel incident. But that's not the case. God has these verses in the Old Testament that give a broad view. That he's going to put the whole thing back together again. And it's not just limited in scope to the Jewish people and Israel. But there's a broadness in the love of God, for all of the scattered peoples. And uh, so this verse at 700 B.C. in Isaiah, that there will be this light to the Gentiles. So Simeon, remember Simeon? Simeon in Luke chapter 2 has this statement that's in the scroll of Luke that documents, and this is consistent then with, Luke and Acts, the universalism of God, him being broad, God being inclusive, God going to the nations uh, is very much unfolded in Luke's gospel, and then of course with the book of Acts, when we get to the book of Acts, um, we'll see how it goes out to the nations, okay, so Coming up to then our focus this morning is on chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. And we have the temptation of Jesus. And then Jesus rejected at Nazareth, beginning at verse 16. Now, in in the series on Mark that Harrison has been leading us in, It came up in uh, chapter 6. Okay, So Mark chapter 6 had this short account of Jesus coming to his hometown. And the concluding verse in Mark's account is that Jesus was astonished at their lack of faith. At their lack of faith. That's the way he leaves it. And then um, what we have here in Luke's account would be some of the rest of the story. Some of the rest of the story. It's It's a longer account. Luke has a longer account of this episode of Jesus in Nazareth than does Mark. Mark is briefer. Okay, so we're looking at the blue page then the blue sheet. Now I've taken this out of a wonderful book, Echoes of Scripture, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, by Richard Hayes, Richard Hayes, at Duke Divinity School, Duke Divinity School, and he writes in such a marvelous, this is exquisite, this particular page is just so exquisite. Exquisite. Uh, You want to say Eureka when you read something like this. It's It's paradigm shifting how he expresses this here. At the same time, however, Jesus encounters rejection in his hometown. Indeed, he provokes rejection by citing biblical stories about the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Now these were oral prophets. Before the writing prophets with Amos... 800 BC, there were oral prophets that are not recorded. Uh, They're not not part of the writing prophets, but they're oral prophets, who extended God's gracious power to non-Israelites, such as the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. 1 Kings 17, a story that finds an important echo in Luke and Naaman, the Syrian, 2 Kings 5. Now this is around 875 B.C. 875 B.C. These references anticipate the expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world. A major theme of Luke's second volume. And hint, and this is the exquisite wording here, and hint that the Gentile mission is already prefigured in Israel's scripture. Prefigured, that word prefigured is just astonishing. To be able to see that God's intent and design and strategy, God deliberately was going to put all the pieces back together again And not leave the nations scattered. But it's prefigured right there. Now Jesus, of course, the master teacher, he saw in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5, he found instances that were enlarging the kingdom. The kingdom was going to include Gentiles. So putting pieces together, putting verses together. So this aspect is not in the Mark 6 account. But in Luke 4 here, we have Luke recording that when Jesus comes to Nazareth and teaches and uh, quotes Isaiah 61, he brings in these verses. We know them as verses, of course, in the uh, scrolls. In the scroll for for kings, there was no chapters and no verses. So there are simply these words existing on the king's scroll uh, that give idea of the Gentile mission. Thus, Jesus' programmatic preview of his vocation already begins to undercut the assumption that Israel is the exclusive bearer of God's favor. And this makes the people in Nazareth so angry, they want to kill him. They want to take him up to a cliff. Here's their hometown boy. (laughs) The hometown boy comes back to Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, opens the scroll, preaches from Isaiah 61, but his commentary involves the idea that it's not just Yahweh in Israel. That God's love is broader. Ah, oh boy. Oh boy. So, this is troublesome. So, John Piper, Dr. John Piper, that I've learned a lot from, he, he uses the idea that Israel had God as their mascot. As their mascot. R.C. Sproul's way of saying it was that oftentimes God was relegated to being a cosmic Bellhop. He used that word a hundred times. Cosmic bellhop. Just God, go and do what we need you to do. But you're our God, after all, right? We have you on a, on a you're our mascot. And uh, so this narrow, 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 narrow view, Jesus shatters it. He shatters it as he comes to Nazareth. Okay, the hostility of the Nazareth villagers to this act of subversive Bible reading. Jesus was being subversive in his interpretation of these texts is a clear signal that Jesus, as portrayed in Luke's gospel, is engaged in intertextual narration as a countercultural practice by bringing together text from Isaiah about the new exodus and the liberation of Israel with text from First and 2 Kings about prophetic acts of grace toward non Israelites. Jesus sketches a new and provocative plotline for Israel's story, one in which the role of the servant as a light to the nations, Isaiah 42 and 49, takes on new prominence. It is precisely his scriptural argument for denying Israel's exclusive privilege that is so threatening to the crowd in Nazareth, so very, very threatening to think that God's love, that God's hesed, God's love and mercy, God's compassion is broad, the broad view that really agitated, really agitated that he would be more than our God, that God would have ambitious plans extending far beyond just the Jewish people. Okay. Accordingly, the people's rejection of the Spirit-anointed servant, Jesus, illustrates the truth of Simeon's earlier prophecy that Jesus would become the catalyst for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And we know this is how the story unho- unfolds in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give us to know that that Jesus comes on the scene and the opposition comes on hot and heavy and quick. Very hot and heavy and quick. As early as Mark 3 6, they want to kill him. Here in Luke chapter 4, they want to kill him. Not marginalize him. Not keep him on the radar screen and develop a dossier, see where this is going to go. No. They come to a conclusion quick. I'm going to kill him. And so the opposition is very much you know, in the storyline of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's, usually, it's mostly the Jewish leadership. Now you have the crowds. The crowds are fickle. You've got his disciples that struggle to keep up with Jesus and his teaching. And then you have the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, those in the temple uh, that are trying to, of course, trip Jesus up in many ways, particularly with the law that Jesus is maybe uh, making uh, bad characterizations of the law, but he came to fulfill the law perfectly. At one and the same time, then in Luke 4, Jesus announces the fulfillment of the Isianic hope of national restoration, Jewish restoration, and challenges conventional conceptions of national privilege no other story illuminates more clearly the way in which Luke's Jesus carries forward the story of Israel's redemption while at the same time transforming that story into something different and surprising and thereby arousing opposition and division so this gets at some of the rationale and the reason why When Jesus went about preaching and teaching, kingdom related of course, he came to inaugurate a kingdom through preaching, teaching, healings, and miracles. They were all demonstrations of power to certify his kingdom mission, but an opposition arose. And uh, this comes out, you know, Isaiah is very much used in Luke's Gospel and Acts, but here I wanted to bring out first and foremost this morning in chapter 4, when we think about Jesus coming to his hometown. And this is fairly early, you know, we think Jesus had at least a three or four year public ministry because there are the three Passovers, maybe four, in the Gospel of John. John's, John's gospel is the most definitive in the duration of Jesus' public ministry. But this is quite early in his ministry that this opposition develops. So, okay, continuing on then, we have the parables. So we're up to eight. So in your white sheet there, you have Luke 8.10. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and in hearing they may not understand. Now, when I go to the shooting range, you know there are earplugs, okay? There are earplugs. So let's think of Isaiah's ministry. Uh, Isaiah's ministry. If you read, of course, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, there's the often used maybe a hundred, maybe maybe hundreds of thousands of times in sermons for commissioning missionaries. Who shall I send? Send me. But then verses 9 and 10 would seldom be quoted because that's the commission. What is Isaiah going to do? Now Amos had a ministry of maybe only one month. He leaves Tocoa, sycamore trees. He's called into service for maybe a month. Amos, 800 B.C. Isaiah, on the other hand, has a 40-50 year duration ministry of prophecy, and his what he's told: his job is going to be God gives him, in essence, a bag of ear stoppers, and for 50 years his mission's going to be to put them in the ears. And he's going to put blinders on as well. Okay, That's his mission. Because in chapter 5 of Isaiah, the vineyard, the landowner has this property, he goes away, he comes back at harvest time with servants come back and they want to collect the rent. Well, the servants are killed. More servants are sent, they're killed. I'll send my son. Certainly they'll regard him. They kill the son. What are you going to do? What are you going to do after they kill your son? Well, it's judgment time. (laughs) It's judgment time! Big time. Okay, Isaiah, go out to the people. You're going to put earplugs in their ears. You're going to put blinders on their eyes. These people are going to be prepared for utter judgment. Catastrophic judgment. And uh, so when we think of Isaiah's ministry, it's a very difficult ministry. Uh, You know, when when pastors preach today, saying, uh, the word is going forth, the seed is being scattered, and we know the seed falls on different kinds of soils, right? And uh, so, the word does not return void. Okay, the word doesn't return void. So as the word goes out, it's doing its work, right? It's either going to bring people closer, or it's going to bring them further. And into judgment. And uh, so the work, I mean it's, in some sense you could have a warning sign going into a sanctuary, warning. Uh, you're not going to come out of this place an hour later unchanged, right? The Holy Spirit's going to be doing its work, its blessed work over that period of time and you're going to be drawn closer or pushed further away. So when we think of Isaiah's ministry, very, very tough work. You, the people you look on. I mean, he looked on thousands, tens of thousands of people over 50 years, and he knew that they, they were being fitted for destruction. I mean, he was like tying them into bundles for the fire. That was his job. Get them ready. Get them ready. And uh, so, the Isaiah 6 9, and he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So, I mean, maybe some of you hear the echo of Exodus 10 with Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, God, it says in the text that God hardened, right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go. So, in the pro, you know, this is the providence of God. This is uh, God sovereign. A sovereign God disposes people in places and circumstances. And so, God intentionally, God deliberately hardened Pharaoh's heart so that his you know longer term strategy of uh, what would happen, releasing the people from Egypt eventually. But we see, this is in Isaiah, when we look at Isaiah 5 and Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, the approach that God is taking in order to harden a people or make their heart fatty is another uh, way of saying this, uh, a fatty heart, uh, rendering them insensitive, rendering them insensitive to the gospel or the good news. And uh, so this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to take the word into hearts and minds and bring people to saving faith through regeneration or to prepare them for judgment. So along with Isaiah 42 and Isaiah's 49, there is Isaiah 6 that you will probably remember, and perhaps Isaiah 5 with the uh, vineyard. Okay, so in chapter 19, if you've got your Bible, we're looking at 19 is the entry, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And at forty six, John, Luke nineteen forty six, saying to them, "It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." So Isaiah fifty six is being quoted here. These I will bring to my holy mountain. Mountain, of course, is a very key word for Hebrews. Great things happen. These these are relevant. Revelation happens at mountaintop times. You know, going back to Moses. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then Luke 20. And he began to tell the people a parable. A man planted this vineyard and let out... A tenant, and they went in and he went into another country for a long, long while. And Isaiah again records this in chapter five, the first eight verses in our English Bible. And this importantly is brought into the final week, Passion Week. So when Jesus comes into town on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. You know, about thirty percent of the New Testament is the last week of Christ's life. So the the motion slows down. Uh, the action, particularly in Mark, it, you know, Mark uses the word immediately, immediately, immediately. The, the action is very fast. It gallops along uh, in much of the Gospels. But when we come to Palm Sunday, then we really get into slow mo, and the action slows down, frame by frame by frame by frame, and uh, so it really rivets our attention on this final Passion Week, and that's where Isaiah 5 comes in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they bring in the vineyard, and again, on Israel's money, there was the symbol of the vine, so the vine was emblematic of Israel, So when Jesus is given a series of parables and he comes to Isaiah 5 that's a bad one because everyone knew that Isaiah 5 was written in this indictment which Greg helped us to understand that when Isaiah was written to the contemporary audience one of the illustrations was this vineyard scene of a man having an ownership of a land. He wants a vineyard that's going to produce crops and get a profit. He sends the servants to get at harvest time his share, the owner's share. They kill, kill the servants and then they kill even the son. So when Jesus is confronting during Passion Week the opposition, the Jewish leadership, when he picks as one of his parables... <laughs> Isaiah 5, and you've got, he's speaking to the Jewish leadership, that's us! I mean, they know, this. he's talking about us! And it's almost a deja vu, right? We've got a deja vu going here. Here was Isaiah at 800 BC, 740 BC, using this illustration, and Jesus now brings it forward, and he sees the same situation going on. The same thing that Isaiah encountered is now what Jesus is encountering with opposition. So Jesus reaches back, picks Isaiah 5 and makes a contemporary application of how this dreadful, ugly setting of God sending prophets to his own people and how they how they process that. How they take this in. They're a threat. They're a threat. Jesus is a threat to the Jewish people. Is, you know, is the leadership take on this? The leaders, the Jewish leaders have an agenda. Jesus does not fit in with that agenda. Jesus is going in a different direction. They don't like it. They're offended and worse. So Isaiah 5 comes into the Passion Week sequence Of this growing tension leading up to crucifixion, right? I mean, he comes in as a king on Sunday, Palm Sunday. By Friday, he's on a cross. Wow! Things have sure taken a turn here. And uh, so, Isaiah 5 figures into this rising action that unfolds during Passion Week. Well, looking at Luke 23 or let's go to let me leave you with the Emmaus Road of course which is so important let's look at the Emmaus Road here as we conclude okay so Emmaus Road um let's see where we want to go That very day, at verse 13, 24, 13, and that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation? that you are holding with each other as you walk, and they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that has happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty and Deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all that, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, and they were at the tomb in the morning and When they did not find the body, they came back saying that they even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive, Um, dropping down. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets he interpreted to them all the scriptures the things concerning himself Okay, so Jesus is in all of the scriptures of course we know that because we're looking back we are very very blessed and fortunate to be living in the latter days. We're living in the latter days and we're able to look back on all of these earlier events and we have all 66 books of Scripture. Now before I end, I have some DVDs if you want something for summer viewing. How the King James Bible came to be, a very well done movie, a couple of hours long, um, it was done on the 400th anniversary of the 1611. So in 2011, um, the making of the King James Bible, another version, the English Reformation and the Puritans with Michael Reeves, Ligonier put this out, the story of the English Bible including of course William Tyndall and others involved in translations, and Y66, how the canon of scripture came about. Why there are the 39 and 27, how that came about. Um, I also brought today um, the Westminster Annotations. The Westminster Annotations. So as the Westminster Divines met in Westminster Abbey from 1643 to 1652, they took copious notes evidently. There are two volumes covering from Genesis to Revelation. So you can imagine, can you imagine the manuscript written out in long hand that would have been taken into a print shop turned into these two volumes.